Heavenly Father, I stand before you as simply your vessel to be your mouth in this instance. May it be as if Jesus Christ were present here physically today in speaking to this congregation. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may understand all that we have in Jesus Christ and all that we are called to do, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've placed upon our lives. Thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to finish this chapter this morning. So strap yourselves in. Gird your loins. Prepare to have your mind stretched. Starting chapter 7, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. This is Stephen's defense of himself against the, to the council and those in attendance in Jerusalem. Acts 7, verse 20. Acts 7, verse 20. You all there? Very good. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You look up, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the god of Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it wasn't until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Then when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. As we continue our study of Stephen's sermon... In Acts chapter 7, we have seen Stephen defend himself against four charges of blasphemy. This is where they are found. Acts chapter 6, verses 10 to 14. Uh, His accusers are claiming that Stephen blasphemed Moses and God, the holy place, which is the temple, and the law. Now, he defended himself from last week's sermon by addressing the first charge, they blasphemed God. And he began to transition into a brief 
reciting of the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham. And his audience would have loved that. And last Sunday, we got as far as the life of Joseph. Now, when we read Stephen's defense in the 21st century, I think it's hard for us to understand why in the world would the Jewish council be so offended they would take this man's life. You ever feel that way when you read this story? I don't really understand what's so bad about what he said. Well, to give us a proper historical understanding of sermons, I introduced a theological interpretive tool, I call it, called what? It's called a type of Christ. Remember that from last week? This was commonly understood by Jews as a way to understand the Bible. And I said that Joseph is a classical type of Christ, and that Joseph's life mirrors the life of Jesus Christ. For example, both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed and sold out of envy by the Jews. Both were humbled, but then what? Exalted to the loftiest or highest position. Both were used by God to redeem Israel, etc., etc. Now, the main point that, that Stephen is making to his audience, and that what Luke wants us to understand is this, is that as far back as the very formation of Israel, from Abraham, one person, and Sarah, to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the, the twelve sons of Israel, there was always a rebellion with this people against the purposes of God through one Redeemer. Okay? You with me so far? Alright, so let's talk about Moses and how he is a type of Christ. In Genesis 15, God reveals to Abraham this information. It's a prophecy. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. How did God work that out? Well, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had his 12 sons, 11 of the sons, or 10 of the sons basically, tried to kill Joseph. Joseph was eventually sold to slavery to Egypt. God raised him up to the second and highest command in Egypt. There was a famine in the land. And guess where Israel had to go to get food? Egypt. So they go to Egypt, and now they're there, and they are multiplying like rabbits. (laughs) And the Egyptians overpower them, and force them into service. And they're crying out, and this is going on for 400 years. But this is all part of God's plan. Do you see that? Okay, very good. The man who God would use to deliver his people from their oppression was who? Moses. That's why you look at Acts chapter 7, verse 25, since you're there. Moses tried to do it in his own strength when he took the life of the Egyptian taskmaster. Verse 25 says, He, meaning Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by what? His hand. But did they understand? No. Verse 35 to 37. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. In other words, God sent him after the burning bush incident. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt. What were some of those wonders and signs? 
Parting of the Red Sea. What else? The ten plagues. All of that. Excellent. Good job. And at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. In the wilderness, what signs and wonders did God do through Moses? Well, he brought water out of a rock. Manna from heaven. Remember that? The dew in the ground and then the, the quail that would fly overhead. God provided for them through Moses. This is a Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, what Stephen is referring to in verse 37, just know that every Jew, and especially those on the council that are accusing Stephen, they knew about this prophecy of a coming Messiah. They know it because it was written here by Moses. And watch this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is a really big indictment against the Jewish people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. That's exactly what Stephen said, right? Watch this. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. When God came down on my Sinai, it was such a devastating and awful and terrifying experience for the people because of the power of God. He said, Moses, you go talk to God. We'll stay away at a distance. They're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Who is, in Deuteronomy 18, who is Moses referring to? Jesus. Exactly. Pretty simple, right? Now, the council, they knew that the miracles that Jesus performed proved that he was the Messiah Moses spoke of. Think about this. Moses fed millions of people. How? In a desert, by the way. The manna from heaven. Remember how it happened? The dew would go on the ground and they'd wake up in the morning and there'd be bread for them in the morning. Like a flaky bread. What did Jesus do that was comparable to that? Well, he just fed 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and some fish. Remember that? When Jesus did that, do you remember the response of the people? In John chapter 6, verse 14, this is the people's response. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come to the world, referring to this man right here. They knew that he was like Moses. You follow me so far? They knew he was like Moses. This was the one that they were to listen to. This is why the the religious leadership wanted to quiet the people and get rid of Jesus. And by saying what, what Stephen has said, in a way he is presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah to the council. This group assembled assembled before Stephen knew everything about the Christ. They knew the word of God. If they just look at the facts, they'd see that Jesus Christ paralleled Moses in every way. Look at just, again, some of these. They all knew Moses was a deliverer from among his own people, a Jew, and so was Jesus Christ. Moses came down from a palace to release men in bondage. So did Jesus Christ. Moses offered himself to Israel and was rejected and then went and raised up seed among the Gentiles. This is why Stephen put this in here. 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. That's why, like Moses, Jesus was rejected by Israel, so he turned up and raised up a seed in the church, the Gentiles, that is us. Moses was rejected the first time, but accepted the second time, and so will be Jesus Christ. Moses was a great redeemer, so was Christ. Moses performed signs and wonders, you can read that and so on. I mean, he's even a shepherd, so is Jesus Christ. Blatantly obvious that Moses and that Jesus are connected, that Jesus was the Messiah. So, in essence, what Moses is saying to his people, and what Stephen is saying to the people, what Moses is saying, be on the lookout for one like me. When you see one like me, listen to him, because he's your Messiah. And the Jews at the time of Jesus had looked, but they hadn't seen. They missed him. This is why Jesus would say frequently, leave them alone. They are what? Blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And I want you just to see that Stephen is masterfully showing his audience that the history of Moses is the foreshadowing of the history of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Now, one of the arguments, even to this day, that Jews have is this. If Jesus had been our Messiah, we would have known it. And to that, Stephen says this in his defense so far we studied. Guess what, guys? You already missed Joseph. You never picked up on Joseph until when? The second time around. And you guys missed Moses. Remember, they rejected him the first time. You didn't pick up on Moses until the second time around. So when is it that Israel is going to pick up on Jesus as their Messiah? Well, it's going to come again the second time around. Do you remember Jesus' words after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, days before his crucifixion? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, meaning the temple. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. So through Moses, through Joseph, and through Moses, Stephen is presenting Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to this council. Now he's also accused of blaspheming the law. Let's talk about the law for a minute here. By the way, such a natural transition for Stephen because the law is always associated with who? Moses. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth realized Jesus Christ. And in verse 38 of chapter 7, he addresses the accusation of blaspheming the law. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, speaking of Moses, with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. What are the living oracles? When Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him what? The Ten Commandments. Those are the living oracles. 
So in regards to the accusation on blaspheming the law, Stephen is saying, no, 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 I believe in the law. I believe God gave the law to Moses up in Mount Sinai. So he recognizes God is the author, the angels are the mediators, and Moses was the recipient. But then verse 39, he indicts him, or he goes on the offensive. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. What's he referring to there? In other words, he's saying this. You want to talk about blaspheming God's law, check your own history. You always go back to the sacredness of your forefathers. But they're the ones that were disobedient. When Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and God gave him the Ten Commandments, what were the people doing at the foot of the mountain? Idol worship. They're making false gods that they learned from where? Egypt. They were literally worshiping false gods at the foot of the mountain where Moses is receiving the law. And Stephen's point couldn't be any clearer. Israel, in the history of Israel, it's not so sacred. The fathers, the patriarchs, they're not to be so highly esteemed. And one certainly couldn't boast of our fathers' loyalty to Moses because they rejected him, and they've also rejected the law. It was rejected at Mount Sinai. In fact, they rejected the law even before what was being given, even before, though, they even heard it. They chose idols. And because of that, Stephen says, look at verse 39 again, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Now, what does that mean? Well, they desired the, the pleasures of Egypt and the Egyptian pagan gods. And so they initiated the idolatries of Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai, the making of the golden calf. And sadly, from that time, from that time, Israel kept those idolatries throughout their history. Until they exhausted the patience of God, and he sent them off into captivity to where? Babylon. The story of Daniel, remember that? So in a span of five verses, Max 7, 39 to 43, Stephen just gives a, recites the history of idolatry in Israel from Mount Sinai to Babylon. Now, I don't want you to forget that during that entire time from Mount Sinai to Babylon, they, Israel had the law and they also had teachers of the law that were instructing the people on how to keep the law. But instead of keeping the law, they just rejected it over and over and over again for about a thousand years. And so far, Stephen has indicted this nation of Israel, and the very people in that room with him, from the very beginning for rejecting God. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. And they rejected the law. Now, he's accused of what? Blaspheming God, Moses, and the law. He's just basically taking the mirror and turned it in their faces. Let's talk about the temple. The last accusation, the temple. You blaspheme the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. 
There's a section here I didn't go over for time's sake, but if you want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 8 and look at what the people did while they had the temple, and we're not going to go there, but while they had the temple and the law, they literally, when they had the building, they wrote, they drew pictures of idols in the temple, and they worshipped in the temple. That's how bad it is. In Ezekiel chapter 8, it's just an indicting chapter on the history of Israel. But in Acts 7.44, he brings up the temple. And Stephen begins his defense of blaspheming the temple, and he gives him a brief history of the temple to show that he believes that God ordained it. God gave Moses the blueprints for an earthly temple that was patterned after what? The temple in heaven. The Israelites brought the portable temple into the promised land, and they would actually dispossess the nations with God before them, carrying that portable temple, and they settled in most of the promised land. And then eventually Solomon built God a permanent building. But guess what happened? Because of their sin, because of Israel's sin, what happened to that temple? It was destroyed. It was then rebuilt years later by who? Zerubbabel. But again, because of Israel's sin, what happened to that temple? It was destroyed. It was rebuilt a third time by who? Herod. And it was there in the presence of the people at the time of Stephen. But because of Israel's sin, what was going to happen in 70 AD? It was going to be destroyed. So Stephen is saying this. You're accusing me of blaspheming the temple. Now, if you're talking about the temple that God ordained, what you see out there, that's not it. The one he ordained was by Solomon, built by him. In essence, what Stephen is saying is, God is bigger than any building you put him in. In fact, he's saying, I'm only saying what Solomon already said. That's why you have verses 48 and 49 and 50 of Acts chapter 7. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This is Solomon quoting this. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen is saying, if you're going to accuse me of blaspheming the temple, guess who else you're going to have to accuse of blaspheming the temple? Solomon. And Stephen closes his defense by accusing his audience of acting just like their highly esteemed fathers. The ones who tried to do what to Joseph? Sold him out of, kill him, sold him out of envy, betrayed him. He closes his defense by accusing his audience of just that. They're just like their fathers in this particular generation They killed the Son of God. And in that, he does not mince words. Verses 51 through 53, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Are you beginning to understand now why they got so angry at him? As your fathers did, so do you. What an indictment which the prophets did not your fathers persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What a statement. What an indictment. And what happens is the final point, which is nothing more than a contrast. You can't help but see this when you look at this passage. There are three contrasts I want to highlight this morning. The first one, it's not up here in the notes, but it's called full of anger versus full of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. Verses 54 and 55. Now when they heard these things, they were what? Enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Verse 55. But he what? The contrast. Full of the Holy Spirit. They are filled with rage. But it's more than just rage. See, it is rage mixed with frustration. They did not know how to give expression to what they were feeling. So what did they do? They ground their teeth at Stephen. Now, the grinding or the gnashing of teeth, it's a familiar expression in the Bible. It's a common description of those suffering where? In hell. They, those in that council, those in that audience, were acting like they were already in hell. Do you see that? By gnashing their teeth at him. Now, why do I think that? Well, if you look at Luke 13, 28... What does it say to people that reject the Messiah, particularly Jews? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are what? You're cast out. And what are they doing? They're cast out, obviously, in hell. And what are they doing in hell? There's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. The Jews had waited for the kingdom. The king came. He offered in the kingdom. And what did they do to the king? They killed him. Thus, they forfeited the kingdom. To these people, Jesus says, you're going to spend forever grinding your teeth at God when you see you didn't get into the kingdom. And it's just one, Luke 13, 28, is one of many passages that state this. Hell, folks, is going to be full of people forever gnashing their teeth at God in rage and frustration. Think about what that says about the human heart. The Jewish leaders and those in attendance were already so hell-oriented that when they faced the truth of Christ again, this time from one of Jesus' disciples, they got mad. And their anger did not lead to repentance but to bitterness and to hate and eventually murder. Now, in contrast, there is Stephen, who is what? Full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that actual Greek reads here? But he, means Stephen, being continually full of the Holy Spirit, implying that that was Stephen's lifestyle. He was full of the Holy Spirit in chapter 6. That's why he was chosen. Here he is, full of the Holy Spirit in chapter 7. It was his lifestyle. So the first contrast is full of anger versus full of the Holy Spirit. And out of that comes a second contrast, spiritual blindness and spiritual insight. Spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. Stephen looks up and what does he see? The glory of God and Jesus stands at the right hand of God in heaven. Now this is important for two reasons why Luke put this in here. Because first in Hebrews it says what? A little confusing here. That when Christ 
did his work, what is he doing? He, he what? When Christ had offered for all time his single sacrifice for sins, he what? He sat down at the right hand of God. That's what we think he's doing, right? He's sitting at the right hand of God. His work is finished. But why is he standing now? Well, he sat down in terms of his work of redeeming his people from their sins because that work was completed. But he stands to continue his high priestly work to sustain his people to eternal life. I could think of it this way, and this perhaps will be the one thing you'll remember from this sermon, is my guess. But I like to think of Jesus standing at the right hand of God as Stephen sees him for this reason. When one of the father's children is in trouble, Jesus stands up to help his own. In this case, he is standing up to welcome Stephen home. And when you die, he will stand up and welcome you with open arms into home. That's a wonderful thought. Now second, when Stephen cried out, he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Those words were eerily familiar to the council. Because those words took their minds back to a conversation they had with another prisoner at another time, at another trial, at the same location, with the same group of people. This prisoner had been accused of blasphemy by false witnesses, just like Stephen. He was asked if the charges were true, and this is his reply. Sound familiar? To Jesus they say this, are you the high priest? And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said what? I am and you will see what? So the man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. They killed Jesus for such blasphemy. When Stephen sees Jesus in heaven, what is he now verifying that Jesus said? That what Jesus said is what? True. Exactly. Does verse 57 now make sense to you? But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They didn't want to hear any more of the truth. They couldn't handle it. They were so full of rage. Actually, what's, what's happening here is more than this. Listen to this. The word rushed here, it's used twice in the New Testament, other than this instance. It's describing a mob that attacked Paul in Ephesus where the mob rushed at him. It also describes the pigs who were filled with demons and they rushed headlong over a cliff into the water. Now, the, these, this council, they couldn't see because they were spiritually blind. They were filled with hatred, and in a demonic rush, they see Stephen. This was demonic, folks. Spiritual sight and spiritual blindness, the contrast. And the final contrast is death in life. They thought that the council, it is, that by killing Stephen, but in reality, what were they doing to Stephen? They were just ushering him into eternal life. The law stated that to stone someone, they had to do it outside the city as punishment for blasphemy with two or three witnesses, and the man who witnessed the actions, or, the, or heard what was said, he had to be the executioner as well. And people thought twice before they accused somebody. 
That's why verse 58 reads this, and this is crucial. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, how did they stone somebody? Just to give you the insight here. I'm going to read to you from the Mishnah. It's verbatim, it says this. The drop from the stoning place was twice the height of a man. So in other words, they took Stephen to a place that if he was six feet tall, that was 12 feet, and they would drop him down that hill, whatever you want to call it, cliff. But the drop from the stoning place was twice the height of a man. There was a precipice of about 10 feet plus rocks below. One of the witnesses pushes a criminal off from behind, so he falls face forward onto the rocks. Then he's turned over on his back. If he dies from the fall, that's sufficient. If not, the second witness takes a large stone and drops it on his heart. If this cause is death, it is sufficient. If not, he is then stoned by all the congregation of Israel. This is what was happening to Stephen. So they took off, don't miss this, whatever garments might hinder them. You know why they did that? So they could give full vent to the fury that was inside them. I mean, they didn't want anything hindering them. It just shows you how much they hated everything Stephen stood for. But of course, we know better, right? They didn't really hate Stephen. Who did they hate? Jesus. Now notice that the man who was standing there was Saul, who later was renamed the Apostle Paul. But the fact that he was the guy standing in the front where they put their garments is a fairly good indication that he may have been the ringleader of Stephen's murder. And since Stephen had been arguing in the synagogue of the people from Cilicia, and Paul was from Cilicia, it's very likely that he was arguing with Paul. And that Paul, as zealous as he was, was probably heading up the whole reaction to Stephen. You see, death satisfied this mob, this crowd. But for Stephen, it wasn't death. It was life. Remember the words of Jesus? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Exactly. On April 17th, 1521, 25 books were laid before a man on a table. He was asked two questions. Are these books yours and will you recant them? Martin Luther hesitated, apparently intimidated by the setting and huge crowds of dignitaries. They acknowledged in a barely audible voice that they were his. Sounds familiar to Stephen, doesn't it? He then asked for time to consider the second question because the matter involved the salvation of his soul, the truth of the word of God. And the emperor gave him a day, or a stay of one day, a day that would, would be one of the most famous in history. Luther had time to think and to discuss things with his friends, and he gathered himself. He returned to the trial as composed and brave as he had been intimidated the day before. Martin Luther then, amazingly and in an act of great boldness, exhorted the young emperor, 17 years his junior, not to begin his reign by condemning the word of God. He reminded him of the judgments against Pharaoh, the king of Babylon, and the ungodly kings of Israel. Martin Luther was impressed to give an answer, and this is what he said. 
unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of the Scripture or by clear arguments, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me. My conscience is bound in the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. This irritated the council who began to dispute with him about whether councils could err. Finally, Luther could bear the dispute no more. Here I stand, he cried out, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That stance led to the Protestant Reformation, that it means justified in God's sight, what? By faith, not by works. And we are here today in large part because of what God did through one Martin Luther. We're here this morning in large part because of what God did through Stephen thousands of years ago. So I think it's only appropriate that this is a very appropriate application point. Boldly take the initiative and share your faith. You have the only game in town. The only right answer is to life. The only hope in this world. Share it. Let's pray. Father, as we close with a song this morning, as we lift our hearts up to you in worship, we are somewhat humbled and sombered by what we just read this morning. The boldness through the power of the Holy Spirit that Stephen demonstrated, standing up for his faith, how you used his death to take the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and then eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, use us for those purposes to advance your kingdom here on this earth. Lord, also, after this song we're going to go eat, I ask that you would bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on up, worship team. And if any of you have a prayer request,